0: to another episode of the Games in Schools and Libraries podcast. I'm Donald Dennis, and you can find me all over the internet as well. Today, I'm super excited to have an old friend of hey, mine. Hey, who, who are you call an old? Well, Graybeard.
1: Oh, yeah, That's I did, I did recently level up to level 50. So I guess, especially in the eyes of my 18-year-old freshman, I uh, might as well just shuffle off to the grave right now.
0: Oh, no, you are uh, still more vibrant and enthusiastic than uh, many of the youngers that I work with. So give not up on your wonderful life. (laughs) All right. So uh, Scott Nicholson right here, the man, the myth, the legend, Professor Scott Nicholson. Hello there. Thank you
1: for having me back on the show. It's been a while, but it's nice to talk to uh, teachers and librarians and anyone else looking to use games in meaningful ways.
0: Right. I, I keep wishing that we'd worked museum personnel or into the title as well, but oh well. It's not too late. It is always too late. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I've actually really enjoyed working a lot with museums. That's been my main, uh, my main audience I've worked with over the last few years um, it, with, uh, with escape rooms, actually.
0: Nice. Well, I, I enjoyed my time at Syracuse University working at the as a GA at the SU Art Museums. That was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Uh, and, and now knowing what we can actually do in life in museums, I think that uh, if I was having that GA ship again, it would take a completely different form. <laughs> so, well, besides me being older. All right. Uh, enough of that nonsense. Scott, where can you be found on the walls of the internet?
1: Uh, if you are on Twitter, you can find me at S. Nicholson or Facebook, Professor Scott Nicholson, or just go to scottnicholson.com. And that's got links to all my different social stuff and my writings and all of that
0: stuff. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, I like that you keep your articles posted up there uh, so that you can distribute them. And I understand that you – that I saw somebody post on Twitter like, hey, folks who write articles still sort of have the right to distribute their own stuff. And is, is that true always or just – in some circumstances, you have to
1: negotiate it with the publisher. So publishers will put out a dummy contract when you sign on to uh, have something. And the reason why it's called a dummy contract is you'd be a dummy to accept it as it is. Yes. Um, so I always look in that dummy contract for the phrases about how I'm allowed to post. Many times you can post, it's called a preprint, pre-print which is the version that you submitted to the publisher. Now they may make changes, they may make layout changes or tutorial changes, Uh, the preprint needs to be a version before those changes are made. But sometimes they will let you post the final version, sometimes they'll let you post a preprint. If they don't say either, I always ask, about um, if I can post a version of this article on my website. If they don't respond, I don't sign the contract, but I continue going through the editorial process with the organization. And then usually somewhere near the end of the process, when they've done the layout of the journal, they've got page numbers assigned to your article, they usually realize you haven't signed the contract, the the copyright agreement. And that's a great place to come back and say, I've got one thing I want to add. And that has always worked. Um, even after they've done the work, after they, yes, after they've assigned you page numbers and they've laid it out, if you've held off on signing that agreement, um, you had then have the power to say, Hey, I just want to put a copy of this on my website. Um, and then I'll sign it and we'll be fine. And that I've only had to go to that extent with one publisher who argued that putting up my four page article would hurt the sales of their three volume encyclopedia. Um, You're that good. I guess so. I guess so. So, but I held out and uh, waited until that final point when they'd already been laid out. At that point, they agreed to let me put a version. And many times they'll ask you to put a link to the final, uh, the final item. Uh, But yeah, it's something you you do need to ask about um, if you can post a preprint. But nowadays most publishers are good about having that built in. Um, But every once in a while you'll have someone that doesn't. And with a book, uh, you can ask about publishing a, a chapter. So you can go in and say, this chapter, I've written this chapter to be shared. Is that okay that we share this as a sample chapter? And design a chapter for that. And so that's been my solution with the book.
0: Nice. Well, and I think having a link back to the actual published article is not doing you any harm at all. It is doing the person who's referencing your whatever copy you've got published is only going to be good for them. So, you know, whether or not they decide to actually go and look at it. The other tip I'll give for
1: any of you out there that are on the academic trail – Um, And you need to worry about uh, metrics, like how many people have cited your work, which can be important for anyone that's going to go for tenure. Um, Many librarians go through the tenure process. I find it helps a lot to write at the top of your article how you'd like the work to be cited. Uh, Say, please cite this work as X. The reason why is because citation tools uh, will gather up works that are all cited in the exact same way quite nicely. But if different people cite your work in different ways, then it won't be as easily searched. So if you want to help your work to have the highest citation counts, because if that's important for your citation, just make sure you help the
0: reader cite your
1: work by telling them how to cite your work at the top of the article.
0: Well, I think that's enough professional episode or development for today. We can call this done. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) Well, Well, All right. So. None of that is, however, about games in schools and libraries, though I guess it is sort of gaming the system. It's all to say it is all a game. It's just how to
1: <laughs> That was actually my 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 advisor when I was going for tenure. She uh, asked me at one point, Scott, do you see this all as a game? Because I was, I was spouting out these kind of ways to work with the system. And I'm like, well, yeah, everything is a game. You, you might not be told the rules of the game, but it's all a game. It's, it's, it's resource management. It's figuring out the underlying rules, some explicit, some implicit, and managing a system to reach your desired outcomes.
0: And it may not be for fun or enjoyment, but it is often for necessity, right? That's right. This is a thing that needs to happen. Well, anyway, so... We have I an have, ice cream truck going by. Yes. yes the, it, it's, it's ice cream
1: time. It's actually, I have an old fashioned alarm clock, a ding dong chime clock on my wall, because what it does is it helps me to stop sitting. So for so long, if I hear the chime go off twice and I haven't moved, I then get up and move around. Cause that tells me I've been sitting for over an hour and not moving. So that's why I have an old fashioned tick tock alarm clock that chimes
0: the hour. Oh, okay. All right. So now we know. <laughs> uh, well, Anyway, we're here for how or something specific. Uh, You were talking just about writings and books and all that nonsense. I mean, sorry, all that wonderfulness. Um, (laughs) You've uh, got a book that is out coming out. uh, Something just came out uh,
1: in March. Yep. It was uh, just, we wrote it over the, uh, the, leading up to Pandemic Time and finished it during Pandemic Time, uh, it's been published. It's a book published by Sage under their Corwin imprint called Unlocking the Potential of Puzzle-Based Learning, Designing Escape Rooms and Games for the Classroom.
0: Super cool.
1: And so, who's your co-author? Give me give me the details on that. So I wrote this book with Liz Cable. Liz is uh, i was I was interested in working with Liz because she and I share very similar DNA in our respective countries. So I'm in Canada, and she's in the u k. Um, and she's very visible on social media, doing really cool stuff with LARPing and escape rooms and ARGs. Um, we've been running in the same circles. Um, and she's a classroom teacher. And so I thought it would be really useful to work on this book with someone who has that experience to say, hey, Scott, you know, in, in the classrooms, it's not really that way. Um, so she was able to bring <laughs> a lot of K-12 knowledge, um, and I was able to bring the higher ed knowledge, and we were able to work together very closely, um, it also was helpful to have different cultural um, uh, different cultural knowledge brought to, brought to bear in the book. So having two different cultures, that was created some interesting times where we talked about uh, terms and expectations and things. So the, the resulting book is going to be more applicable in, in different cultures, um, as well as uh, different
0: levels of schools and library stuff. Quite a few different perspectives. Yeah. So, have you met your co-author personally in real life, or just on social media?
1: I believe we've met at an escape room event, uh, <laughs> but we've done so much online, and you know, we were chatting weekly. That now it's all one big pandemic mush. Um, but yeah, she's uh, she's been active in escape rooms. I you know I don't know if we've physically
0: met. Does that even matter anymore?
1: That, that's the thing is it doesn't matter anymore because we would look at each other on, on Zoom on a weekly basis as we we're working through the whole manuscript. So now it's all just that that is all, that is all there is, isn't there? There was no before times. We are just heads on a screen. Right, right, right.
0: Um, it was a 1,000 years ago or it was during the pandemic. That's right. right.
1: I've taught a class a couple of times on uh, designing escape rooms, so I was able to take a lot of those concepts and build the book around the structure of how I teach a class. Um, and our goal was the, – the big twist we did with this book was realizing that um, if a teacher in a classroom wants to bring in an escape room, the, the model of an escape room is not very good for a classroom so, setting it's not a good match. A uh, traditional small team-based one-hour escape room. Uh, and I've as I've given talks at conferences and talked to teachers, and I've seen teachers who have gotten special spaces in their schools or special rooms dedicated, it still doesn't work very well when you have a group of 30 and you want to send five people to go off and do this small team escape room. Or if you have a group of 30, try to do an escape room for five that's designed for five. That doesn't work either. So uh, an important thing for this book was for us to think about, well, how do we take the design concept of an escape room, but make games and activities that are inspired by that escape games, as we call them in the book, um, that use different game shapes uh, so that it can be something that's successful in a in a classroom environment?
0: So when you're playing in a classroom, I think you're also less likely to actually be trying to do an escape with 30 people. Uh, so why did you go with escape instead of puzzle or solving or some other term. Why, well, why escape? Well, the primary title is Unlocking the Potential of Puzzle-Based Learning. Right. Um,
1: the subtitle is, is Designing Escape Rooms and Games for the Classroom because they are still built on the design concepts of escape rooms. Um, but you know, escape rooms, even as they stand, most escape rooms nowadays are not actually about escaping a room. They're about right. something else. But it's the fact that if I say an escape room, thankfully enough people now have a concept of what they're going to be doing. Uh, in that room, in that game, that it's a good term still to use.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah, it's got that common language. Anything else you want to tell us about your book or something that folks should be looking for?
1: Well, I'll talk a little bit about um, one So one piece of it that can be useful, uh, just to give you an idea of when I talk about these game shapes, what, what we're talking about there, because I think that's the the piece of the book that helps this to become accessible to to teachers. And the book really is built... Uh, It starts by talking about world building and character building before moving on to uh, game shapes and puzzle design. And then we talk about how to actually play test and prototype a game, how to build it out, and then how to facilitate and run the game. And then I've built a sample game for the book around, it's called Information Misliteracy. Um, and so the idea is I wanted a game that could be applied in a variety of uh, of settings. So it's an information literacy game uh, that that then can be used. Um, but the game shapes we talk about in the book, the four game shapes, uh, and I know you've used some of these in the library. Uh, the first is like a pop-up escape room where that's the closest to a traditional escape room model uh, that is just deployed for a short time. And I know you've done pop-up escape rooms in your library.
0: Yep. Several of them.
1: Yeah. So that's, that's the thing. If people are taking a step from escape room, that's usually the first thing they think about is that pop-up escape room. Um, But then we move on to the puzzle box concept where you've got one or more boxes and it, couple different ways to deploy puzzle boxes. Breakout EDU started this puzzle box model, but we present a number of different models of how you can use puzzle boxes. The common model people think about is having one puzzle box for each small group. And so they sit at a table and they all have a same copy of the box. That requires a lot of stuff. So we present a few models to avoid having to have quite so much stuff, but still to use the puzzle box. Hmm. Um, we then talk about puzzle hunts. So I don't know, have you ever used a puzzle hunt model
0: in any of I, your... We've never used one. We've looked at it, but... Honestly, that looks like a lot of work, and we didn't have the expertise to uh, sort of demystify it for us to, to build it up.
1: Yeah, the primary difference with the puzzle box and the puzzle hunt model, the puzzle hunt model is primarily in paper form. People have a series of puzzles they do at their desks, and then when they've accomplished a series of puzzles, they tie into – usually the, a set of puzzles ties into a meta puzzle. When you solve that metapuzzle, it then gives you the code word, the key, the phrase, the whatever, which you give to the teacher, and then you get another packet of puzzles. Mm-hmm. So it's a lower resource – structure than the others. That's kind of how we've structured these to say, well, if you don't have the resources for boxes and locks, you could use a puzzle hunt, and here's what that looks like. But then the final one, and this was Liz's, uh, Liz's idea, and I really, it's my favorite, actually. It's called a serial story. The concept of the serial story is that during each week of class, you have one 10-minute challenge, and it runs over the course of the semester. So the game is now, rather than trying to put together an hour full of content that you then have to test and have to have all this stuff for, it's one thing, one activity that you're doing. It can tie into the class content as the class content continues. It allows you to tell a story in these serial formats, these little modular uh cliffhanger formats. You can also get input from the players as to what next week's story might entail. You can use the old GM trick. Ask people what they think will happen, and that gives you some great ideas to go off and actually make some of those concepts come true. Um, It can also tie very nicely into having the students design 10-minute activities. That Once you've shown them a few and they see what they look like, that can become a student assignment to say, now you're going to make one for next week's class. And it allows you to develop less at once to move the story forward with player input. It's a lot more um, controllable, and you can try very different sorts of activities. So you could have one week where you go outside. You could have one week where it's paper. You could have one week where you do bring a lock. Um, so I really like that serial stories model for a class where you're looking at having a full semesters or full years class, and you want to tell a story bit by bit over the course of the year. Sounds like
0: you've got to plan out a lot.
1: I guess it's true for all these. Yep, you really don't. Actually, you can just plan out this week's and maybe where the whole thing is going, and then design the next week to take the story further based on what happens. You, you 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 can plan out the whole thing, but I wouldn't. I would want that flexibility to be able to play off of to play off of what the players do. Just like as a GM, you can watch what the players do with this challenge, and if they fail at it, well, then that's fine. Make the story go in that direction, mm-hmm. uh, but then you can make the content. Uh, it'd be adjusted for each week of the semester so as you move into a new content unit you can have one puzzle that gets people excited about that content unit rather than trying to make an hour of content based on where the student's current mental knowledge is right well that's cool
0: uh, are there any versions of that particular type of uh thing all formalized as a kit that people could purchase that you're aware of or is it just read the book make your own
1: Right now, it's as far as I know, it's read the book, make your own. I'm not aware of that. I mean, you could take any – like the misinformation literacy game we made, you could take that and break it up and run it over six weeks. Hmm. We, you, When we talk about how to do that, we talk about how to take the core game and use it in each of these formats in different ways. We talk about how to build it as a room, how to build it as a puzzle box, how to build it as a puzzle hunt, or how to use it for ster- serial stories. And that's the concept is you could take a game that's designed as a one-hour escape room and carve it up into its smaller pieces Um, and present it that
0: way. That's exciting. All right. Well, I I know we have something else that we want to talk about. So give our listeners, once again, the name of your book uh, so that they can go out and find it and buy it now because it's available right now. It is. And so if you go to uh, Sage is the publisher, so
1: you can search for Sage and the title is Unlocking the Potential of Puzzle-Based Learning. Um, If you search for Scott Nicholson and Sage and Escape Rooms, it'll come up. Um, But yeah, so through the Sage website, you can get an e-version or you can order the print version. Is it in hardback or just paperback? It is in hardback, but the is very expensive. Uh, It's paper. So paper version is about $35. I think the hardback's over $100. And then there's a digital
0: version as well. That's what you have institutional money for. That's true. That's true. (laughs) All right. Well, excellent. Um, We will be right back to talk about what Scott has done to his class. (laughs) All right. And we're back and we're going to talk about Scott tormenting
1: his class. That's right. So I've, as I mentioned earlier, I've taught an escape room design class uh, three years now. We've just finished our third run of it. This one was taught entirely remotely. So that was a challenge to say, well, all right, I'm, I'm slated to teach you escape room design class. Uh, we're going to be remote, so now what? Um, thankfully, the escape room industry has been creating a variety of remote models, and so we thought, well, it's a great time for the students to do so. So we started the class by looking at, and playing some different remote games. We played some games in the UK, we played some games in Amsterdam, um, the students got – that was a cool thing about being remote is the students were able to travel around the world to see some games. That was very nice. Uh, and then we went through how you start with your story and characters. But the big thing we decided to do this time is in the past, we've run an escape room event on campus. So we've had um, eight different escape rooms running simultaneously, and people would move from one to the other to play them all. And so this time we did the same thing, but we did it all using a tool called Discord.
0: Ah. Uh-huh. I love and I hate Discord both.
1: <laughs> well, it does some
0: things really well with that Like
1: Zoom doesn't. Um, Discord works very well to create a separate rooms. And with those rooms, everyone can see who is in what room. So when you're trying to run a large event with, in this case, we had six teams. We had eight different 15-minute escape games. And we had to get an idea of where all the teams were at each time. Now, if you're face-to-face, it's fairly easy to find people and shuffle them around. Online, it's much more difficult. And so Discord makes it very easy to see where all of your teams are so that if uh, people are not where they need to be, you can go in and nudge them to where they should be going. It also carves up that space nicely so that each of the student teams had their own little space that they could create and customize and do whatever they wanted to for their 15-minute escape game.
0: It was pretty impressive how much you got people work through because I got pulled into it I don't know about half an hour into it maybe a little longer um, Yep that's about right yep and I was able to jump in and uh, the first first little room I was in was just I was horribly confused about exactly what was going on and how to do it but then uh, after that I was able to sort of participate on equal footing and then eventually all by myself because <laughs> that- Nothing ever goes well with me. You
1: drove away all of your teammates, and so you were on your own. One. My one teammate. <laughs> yeah, the way it worked is we had um, eight different student teams, and then all of the player teams were all assigned to one of the rooms. Um, we had worked very hard with the students uh, over the course of the semester to have them make sure their games ran in less than 15 minutes. Uh-huh because it was important that people were scheduled to play in each room on on 20-minute intervals, so they'd have a bit of a break. But it was very important to move the teams on. So the students had not only designed 15-minute rooms, they had designed uh, break points in the rooms where they could stop their game early and still have a a satisfying ending. Um, Some of that came with having the larger story designed so that that would work. And that was one of the challenges was to create the meta story such that it supported all of this, but players didn't need to interact with it at all to still enjoy playing individual rooms. You could play each of the rooms by themselves and they all had an ending and they all had a reward and that would be fine. If you wanted to get a little deeper into the onion, there were layers of metagame that you could get into. Um, And then the actual story was a much broader piece, which is how you do any sort of design that, that uh, we use uh, Disney as a model of this, that if you go and ride space mountain, for example, you can ride it and be like, yay, that's a roller coaster. Well, you're kind of seeing the little tip of the design iceberg. If you go a little deeper, and start to look at the setting and look at this, the environmental storytelling. It's like, oh, there's actually more going on here. It's not just a roller coaster. It's, it's there's something happening. And then you can dig deeper and learn things that are nowhere in the ride directly but if you know they're there, it's rewarding because you can see little remnants of, oh, there's this language I didn't know, or there's this piece I didn't know, or we're actually going here. And we use that same model in creating this, that there's a much larger story, but the players only have to interact with a very tiny piece of it to still have an enjoyable escape experience.
0: So for my my experience of the hey, the overarching meta is that um, the 15-minute chunks of time that you were given to go into each room did not provide my brain the ability to recalibrate and focus on something larger. But then again, I was not there for the big intro. So, um,
1: Right, you missed out on, there was a thing sent about two weeks ahead of time, a video, uh, some description, and then some stuff that happened at the beginning um, to get people set up. With the meta in that game, it was our intention that that was a reward for those that wanted to dig. It was an ARG-type system. Um, We did not, people could play the game as eight individual games. They could bubble it up one meta where they could uh, have an accomplishment from playing the individual games and get a pat on the back. Or they could dig deeper and find some more little secrets that we'd buried away and some hidden areas um, if they wished. But it was not designed as players needed to do all of that. That was a reward for people that wanted to dig deeper. Ah, I get it.
0: Well, uh, so I don't know what you want to talk about. I mean, how... You could I sort of felt like you could tell pretty easily which students put forth the effort um, and which students may have gotten outside help, like putting together their Minecraft things, because some of those were pretty spectacular um, that they used Minecraft as a environment in which to run their puzzles. Right. So the students were tasked that we had no budget. So the students, part of their
1: challenge was you have to come up with something that you'll be able to make. Um, most of them also are not in living spaces where they ha- would have the space to set up a room and have a camera running around that space. Um, right. So that was not an option for most students. Uh, so most students used, uh, some use Minecraft because the generation of undergrads that I have now are people that have been playing Minecraft for a decade. And some are just Minecraft experts and they know how to make those things. Um and they did some pretty spectacular Minecraft builds um, and some of them had their own Minecraft servers and they were able to run it that way. But we did not have players play in Minecraft. That was an early decision is that we wanted the games because we knew we'd have a variety of players coming to the games. We wanted the games to all be watch a stream. And not have to load up a Minecraft program, not have to teach someone how to run around in Minecraft. We knew that wouldn't work. That was going to create too many technical hassles. So instead, you were watching a stream, and different students handled that in different ways. Some had it more first person, where you were with one person. Uh, Another team of students had one person playing the camera and another character in the world that was interacting with things. and So it was interesting to see the students even have different takes on Minecraft. Some students used a model where it's still pictures and kind of a point-and-click model for the game where you were interacting with someone. Um, Others used more of just a tabletop role-playing game model where they were very simple pictures, but it was more um, an audio-based escape room. So the students were allowed to pick whatever format they wanted. The goal was just to keep it um, easy to access. Uh, the most technical we had were several students had uh, puzzles in Google Docs or Google Draw that you could share the link with the team and then one person from the team or everyone from the team could manipulate the parts of that. Um, and even if people were having trouble with that, you could still, the main student could stream that and ask the players, well, what should I do? If mm-hmm. if that was struggling, but we found having just a little bit to manipulate made people happy without having to pay for a service. There are services out there to make that easier, um, but we wanted to keep this uh, a low budget as we could.
0: Right. So were they allowed to, I guess they were allowed to make expense, spend stuff if they wanted to, but you had no innate budget for the class. Right. Because we weren't charging for the games. And so
1: there was no money that was going to be provided for the students making the game. So they had to figure out using And that's fine. I find if you have access to expensive tools, sometimes you don't design as well because you just use the tool. Uh, We see that a lot of escape rooms that use flash and bang or the horror escape rooms that use scary and gore, and they don't really spend a lot of time making good puzzles. So in this case, it had to be the storytelling. It had to be the puzzles. um, That had to be what was important um, rather than relying upon fancy tech.
0: Yeah, so what what were some of the highlights for you that you would like to point out for uh, results that happened because of the event?
1: Well, the event just ran last night, so we haven't seen everything. But one thing that is interesting is we had some escape room owners who played through and were quite excited and invited the students if they wish to develop out these games further than to contact them. Uh, mm-hmm. Because, and I plan to talk with the students about that, to help them realize, yeah, the door is open for you for do, to do this. This would be a great summer project. Um, you can host a Minecraft-based escape room just as easily as anyone else. You could make the room, you put up a website, and charge people to play your game. That's we've had students that come out of this class and get hired by escape rooms as designers because this is something. There is not a lot of places out there where students learn how to do this, and because they run the game for the public, they've had that experience of actually putting their games, play testing it to the point, and running it. Um, and it is as published at, th- at this point as any any escape room is. I've done this event. Uh, this is the third time I've taught the class, and the lesson, big lessons I've learned. If you have interest in having students make escape rooms and running some sort of event, the first time I ran it as a larger mystery, and each puzzle helped give some of the clues towards the mystery. Oh, okay. The what the problem with that is that that then becomes, it was built reliant on each game, had to succeed. Because we built the story such that each game moved the story forward. Players moved through it in a linear fashion. So the first team would go to the first room to learn the first part of the mystery. Then they go to the second area for the second part of the mystery. And then we'd start the first team on the, the sorry, the second team would come in the first room and the teams would cycle through that way. The problem with oh, that yeah, model... yeah, that's like old IFGS events. Yes, it is. It's okay. funny how all of this old uh, live-action role-playing stuff all comes piling back in. Um, so the problem with that is that it doesn't give any room for failure. If a room fails, if a student group doesn't come through, you really are in trouble. And that was the mistake I made that first time. Um, the second time, we ran it with a series of rooms that were independent. And physically independent so that people could um, go from room to room. And then after they saw that, that it was all, it didn't really have a large meta, but rather just a series of individual projects. So this time, what we tried differently is we made it such that you could do these rooms as individual rooms. And that was fine. You could collect information from each one and put that together if you wanted to get involved in the meta, if you wanted to get a little deeper involved. But if any single room had not been able to make it, it would have been easy to uh, just take that room out of the schedule and give the players the specific password that comes would come from that room to let them continue with the meta. Right. Especially since we were in an online format, you never knew if a student was going to disappear, have bad internet connection. Um, and so being able to quickly modularize the activities so that if something went wrong with one of them, it doesn't wreck your story or your game. That's the most important piece of advice I would give if you wanted to do something like this.
0: Nice. In fact, I uh, recently in one of the uh, library and programming programming librarians groups on Facebook, I have found several online escape rooms. I'm going to have to look those up and see how they compared to what I went through with you. Um, but so did you have any students completely disappear or was it just the people going through the rooms?
1: Uh, in this case, it was the students, the students that made it to this point of the class all were here. Um, uh, we didn't all make it to this point in the class. Some students uh, decided this wasn't for them before the end, which always happens. Um, but uh, in this case, the, the 14 that made it to this point, they all were there to run the event.
0: I heard some of them... Uh, Talking about the uh, heart palpitations that you gave them each week with the assignments. What was that all about? (laughs) Well, they
1: were busy putting their games out for their peers to see. So each step would be, the the idea was every step would get a little bit further around uh, making their games. But there was a lot of playtesting because we had eight groups. So each week they would end up showing their games to a different group and for live feedback. And so first it was, all right, show one puzzle. Okay, now you're going to show two puzzles. Now you're going to show how it comes together. Now we're going to run a clock and cut you off at 15 minutes. That was a big eye-opener to all of them. <laughs> the first time I put the 15-minute clock on it, no one finished in 15 minutes. No one was even close because no one had thought through what it actually takes to finish a game in 15 minutes.
0: Right. And, uh, and when you're working with something like um, you're going through Discord – you also got a pad for, oh, there's a little bit of connection time. Yep. There's You're going into a completely new environment, so you have to reorient yourself each time. Uh, you have to get used to a new presentation style because you've got a different uh, presenter in each one of the rooms. I don't know what you were calling them. They were um, proctors or uh, – Oh, the prefects? The, the uh, prefix, uh, We were the playing off the
1: Harry Potter, uh, the, the prefects
0: there. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of that mythology just flew over my head. And I was like, I guess this person's important because it's got the same word that everyone else does in all the other rooms. Yeah. Uh, but that, that there's a little bit more of padding that you need just so that folks can or, you know know what they're doing so that they can then figure out what they have to do to know what they're doing. And
1: make sure the students have in their scripts because they had to – the students were assessed on their design documents. So they had to write up the game as though they were writing up for a client. So, it wasn't just running the game. In fact, I didn't grade the actual way that it ran because that, I wanted the run to be more of a celebration of what they've done. They, what I graded was the write up. Because if they were doing this for a client, they have to write this whole thing up. They have to write every word of the script. They have to write it all out um, so that someone else could take it and run it. And that's a hard thing if you've only just run it yourself out of your brain oh, yeah. to have to now, okay, now you have to write up this entire game. In a way that you could hand the script to someone and they could, they could run the game.
0: I mean, for the rooms that we've designed for our library, there are maybe two or three people who could run each of those rooms. Anyone else would basically have to do a lot of work up front to figure out what's going on, you know. And that's where that design document where you've got the scripts, you've got
1: the puzzles, you've got the answers to the puzzles, you've got a reset checklist, you've got a timeline, you've got hints that you give, uh, you've got where the players should be and what hints you give if they're not at those points. You've got your circuit breaker, sort of the, this is going really badly. We wanted the players to always feel like they won. That was a design goal.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Is the, one of the things we I chose to wait for my teammate to be able to reconnect so that we could hear or deal with them and all of the time wearing out. And I didn't understand exactly that that's what was going on. And so the guy's like, well, you tried hard. Um, Here's your key. Yep. And I'm like, well, I didn't try at all. (laughs) Uh, You you could have modified your language on that, but apparently there was a script and I don't know whether it was a he or she actually, I don't remember at this point, but you could have modified your script to say, well, we're, we're going to move you along, but it was hilarious to sort of hear, the robot-like uh, or video game default language pop up.
1: Yeah, yep. great going- job. Here you're, you're a winner. You were try <laughs> hard. Here's your participation token. Well, and part of that is the narrative actually accounted for that.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and that was a goal was to make it such that the narrative actually made sense. Right. Uh, there's, there's an underlying reason
0: why you won no matter what, if you tried. Right, I think it was you were really working with your teammate to get them back online, or you know, blah blah blah. And so it wasn't completely generic, but it I was I was I read between the lines as a game designer. Yep,
1: and yep. So. That was that was a design goal so that everyone could participate in the meta, and it's really based off of the concept of of magic and how magic works. Um, people that want to do magic do so out of their own will. Um, that it's your will for something to come true and therefore you are creating magic. That's uh, a lot of people see magic as that way. And the same concept is true here, that the underlying story was that these challenges were here because they wanted you to will to succeed. They wanted the players to want to succeed. And it is through that wanting to succeed that the magic happens. And mm-hmm. so the challenges created by these prefects are all just puzzles to create the desire in the players to want to win. And it's the, the mm-hmm. desire that makes the magic happen. And that was, so it was the underlying rationale as to why you succeeded if you tried, because that's how magic works.
0: Okay. I mean, <laughs> I, <laughs>
1: at, at least that's how in the narrative of our world, that's how we put this all together.
0: No, I, I just, I don't have a response for that. I mean, yes, that, <laughs> that makes perfect sense. And the way you explained it to the end, um, and I don't know how much of it you're giving away, but it doesn't um,
1: matter. It's because it won't ever be run again. So
0: is, is <laughs> like, so. how many people chose the, the we're keeping, uh, keeping all the things or we are surrendering the things at the end of your event? In the
1: end of the event, it was split about half-half. So the game had, if you did not choose to really engage with the meta, then the meta was go and find the stars and release the stars back into the sky. Yay, you won. And that was designed as the top level if you didn't dig that's what you were there. To, that's what you were there to do. That's what they had designed this temple to do is to get you to find the stars and release the stars. Congratulations! Mm-hmm. If you dug deeper, you learned that well. Actually, these stars maybe shouldn't be released, and you could choose to keep them for yourself. Um, and the, so we had, I think, out of the six teams, I think it was split directly in the middle. Three teams kept. The stars and three teams release the stars, and we wanted that. So we had two different ending spaces based upon which choice you made. You had a different room that you got to go into. Um, the The students, the the prefects in the temple, all wanted you to release the stars, so they were hanging out in the room where you got punch and pie. And so, if you release the stars, and there was a public, yay! You release the stars. Come join us for punch and pie. If you choose to keep the stars and just kind of slink away and not release the stars. Then you got into the deep underground with the other people, as well as some dark shadowy figures who you interact with, um, the other people who were sort of the underground side of things. So we wanted those two endings, those two ending spaces. So you got to hang out with other teams that made the same choice you did.
0: And so if you uh, said, no, I keep the stars and then you disconnect, then you get away with it. scot free. That's right. You don't get dragged into the dark underbelly of anything. Ironically, the
1: story took a little bit from, uh, it's a tragedy in some ways, in that the more you play the game, the more you are doing bad things in the in the overall vision of the world. And so, if you complete all of the challenges, you've actually done a fairly bad thing. And you can reverse it if you wish. Uh, so, the best way to play this game is to not play at all.
0: All right, that don't. sounds like a good place to wrap up here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going any farther because that way apparently lies uh, tragedy. That's right. That's
1: Well, and that is we we spend so much time designing games that are designed with the heroic mindset that there aren't that games like Shadow of the Colossus was a video game that was really all about tragedy. The uh, it, the further you went, the worse the world was getting because of your actions. And so this game had that. But again, that was all underlying meta that you could never acknowledge or understand or get into and that's fine because the game at its surface level is yay we did escape rooms and and that's how many escape rooms are on
0: yeah well oh what else
1: what have we missed what i guess i'll talk about what i'm doing next oh okay
0: yeah i I mean so we're done with your class there's nothing else uh, about your class that you want to say hey this is what you could come learn or um or anything like that. So No, I think the book if you if it sounds exciting to you, buy the
1: book because the book is out of the class. It's it's the hmm. content of In fact, the book was I don't the seem reading. to have
0: the name of that book here anywhere. What was it called again, Scott? Why? It's called Unlocking the Potential
1: of Puzzle-Based Learning. I should probably learn that. That's right. We'll All make right, a puzzle so. a puzzle for you to to learn it. What's next for Scott Nicholson? So here's the the I've actually not announced this anywhere. So Ooh. this is like, yes, this is actually world premiere. Um, we're still signing the dotted lines, but it looks like it's all going to work out. Um, so I have a sabbatical starting in July. Mm-hmm. And for part of that sabbatical, part of it is going to be spending working in my wood shop to make a wooden puzzle box uh, game from scratch. Um, but the other part of it is working with the M-Education Alliance and working on developing a model for creating escape games for low-resource classrooms in Africa. Um, so what they do is they work on creating math games. They work with teachers across Africa to create math-based games. I've been working with them about escape rooms, and they, and what I've realized is there's models here that are interesting, but could I make an escape game model that where the only thing you have in the room is a chalkboard? Because a lot of these classrooms don't have paper. That's not they don't you can't make copies of anything and distribute it. So could we make a model for making escape rooms that's focused, so using nothing more than people, found objects, and a chalkboard? And that is going to be a big project for my next year over my sabbaticals to see if I can work with teachers down there to create uh this model, to create some sample games. And the good thing is the model then, once you have a toolkit to make a game for a low-resource classroom, if you have paper or technology, it can just be added on the top. But it's still at the heart going to be about a good storytelling and creating puzzles that don't rely upon even
0: paper to work with. That's exciting. Are you going to get to travel for any of this to go and do the if thing? If it wasn't for a pandemic, yes,
1: that would be. But I don't think I'll I don't think I'll be able to travel. I think I'll have to be, uh, because of the timing of this, I think it will be done from... Uh, just online, but uh, even with that the online this this same these same tools will be useful to people doing online escapes but because so many of the escape rooms at the heart of this is the problem that escape games in their current structure are resource heavy and but they don't I, I think they don't have to be so uh, that's that's my project for 2020 starting in July for the next for that year is to work on creating a toolkit for teachers that want to, and we're going to focus specifically on math because that's what M-Education Alliance is focused on, math education. Um, but can we make a model for making uh, escape games for classrooms that have nothing but a chalkboard?
0: Yeah, see, that's tough because one of the cool things that whenever I teach escape room design or, or even just share, share escape room with folks in the library is that you know, we go through the, what is it that, that makes escape rooms cool for you? and it's always the i've got these manipulables i can yep. pick things up i can explore physically the world and and not just you know pixels on a screen or, or a piece of paper in a classroom so you're going to be changing the very nature of what it is yep it's but- it's really at the heart it it's
1: it's a it's a fundamental change in what we think about for these games but it I think it has the potential to unlock this type of game for classrooms where they normally, for and it will help any classroom where a teacher doesn't have uh, the budget to bring in paper and locks and all of the stuff. Can we do it? And I don't know. That's this is a, it's a challenge, and but that's going to be the challenge I'm going to take on. Is can I make a design for escape rooms for
0: low resource classrooms? And so, how does this work? Is it do you have specific? Uh, instructors there that you're already in contact with or so yeah the the alliance
1: that's what the alliance has a network across Africa and so they're going to be bringing forth um, the model the current model is they'll bring forth uh, one instructor I'll partner with to make a game then I'll make the toolkit I'll work with a different instructor to make a game using the toolkit we'll deploy that and test it if that works I'll then run a workshop the set of instructors who are all going to use the toolkit to make games. So at the end of the year, we'll have I think six games and the toolkit all um, available through the M Education Alliance website. But the, so they've already got a network in place um, of teachers across Africa.
0: Wow, that's exciting.
1: It, it's, it's actually it's it is interesting how I've gone. I'm going from like working with an organization like Red Bull, where it's like have a giant budget to make this super high tech room, to now can I take those design concepts and make something for a classroom where there's nothing but a chalkboard
0: but uh, would you have gotten here without having worked with the red bull folks
1: i have no idea yeah we'll have to talk to alternate scott about that who's much less hyped
0: i mean i'm (laughs) just saying is that there's nothing wrong with with sort of both angles of attack yeah it's just funny
1: that to make that step to go from sort of this high tech everything super tech to say can we do it with no tech and i think we can but it's going, to be, it's going to require me to uh, tap in a whole bunch of different game models that I've engaged with over the years. Right.
0: Well, and you've got the opportunity to do real world historical style exploration of, you know, like, oh, this is how you tell the time. With a stick and a rock,
1: right? Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, or well, that's it for me is just like I worked with Liz to help me understand classrooms. In this case, I'm working with instructors there to understand, well, what's this classroom structure look like? Um, but I'm excited about it. I think it, it has the potential to give be a pretty significant project and, and give teachers really around the world a new tool uh, to work with.
0: But it sounds like this is going to be a completely non-physical tool. So it's not like the uh, breakout EDU folks have said, here's a list of locks you can buy, or you can buy our set. And then we also have these games available. You're really giving them, here are just instructions for doing your thing.
1: Yeah, it's because the classrooms may have nothing more. I'm going in with the assumption that the classroom has a chalkboard and students, and perhaps you can find some rocks and sticks. And that's what you've got to work with. Um, Can we make escape rooms using nothing but that? And I think the answer is yes, um, but they're not going to look like what you are used to.
0: And and then again, I guess when you're going in and you're working with the instructors, you've got to be very not presumptive about uh, here's what it's like. You've, You've got a lot of learning to do Yep. even even culturally without trying to come in as oh we are the big savior we are instead the team who's going to do this
1: yeah it's going to be it it'll be a really good sabbatical project because it's a chance to get out of my my mindset of what things look like. You know, when I talk about working with the author from the UK and having more cultural backgrounds, it's like, well, no, not really. You know, we're still, <laughs> right. right, yes, right. <laughs> you know, it's not a wide cultural background to say UK and Canada. That's it is wider than Canada. And then I, of course I've got a lot of built in American to bring <laughs> to the table. Um, yeah, but, yes, we do. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but this is really going to be, and I'm looking forward to how this will then affect like the next edition of the book. Uh, how having this thinking about yeah, this is what this looks like in a, in a in a classroom that doesn't. You can't just say go make twenty copies of this and have all the students have a copy. You can't assume that they may have it, but but I, I'm not going to assume
0: that. So, at the end of the sabbatical, are you going to produce another book or or add stuff to the current book? No idea. You'll have to have me on the show in
1: 2022. Hopefully.
0: Yeah, that sounds wonderful. I'll do that. We can check in in uh, <laughs> we'll check in
1: in July 2022 to see how the sabbatical went.
0: <laughs> All right, um, well, I cannot wait for your debriefing. All right, well, Scott, thank you once again for joining us. You know it's it's always great to have you back on. We wouldn't be doing games and libraries podcasting if it were not for you. <laughs> That's for certain. I'm uh, sorry. I mean <laughs> No this is fun. I've I've I like still interested in this show even though it is not on a regular schedule because well, you know, it's not my number one work responsibility. That's for sure. Anyway, Scott, before we go, where can you be found? <laughs> in my chair. All right, so Scott Nicholson <laughs> Before we wrap this all up, where would you like people to find you on the internet? Uh, Easiest way to find me is to head to scottnicholson.com.
1: That is a portal page. It'll take you to all my social stuff and my writings and all that good stuff.
0: Where are you most active online socially?
1: Most active is Twitter at S. That's where I tend to do everything. I also do quite a bit on Facebook. I usually post the same things on both, so you don't need to be following me on both of them at professor.scott.nicholson on Facebook.
0: I like following both and giving completely different responses to the different threads. You are so confusing. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I'm Donald Dennis. And I'm Scott Nicholson. And you've been listening to... On Board Games? Games in Schools and Libraries. Oh, shoot. Oh. Wrong one. Thank you for listening to Games in Schools and Libraries. <laughs> I'm Donald Dennis. You can find out more about me and everyone who helps with the show over at InverseGenius.com the games and schools and libraries podcast is produced in association with the georgetown county library system but they are not responsible for any of the things i've said that's a good thing